Father, we praise you. You are our delight and our joy. We love you so much. You're so good to us, even though we don't deserve it. But we have gathered here to worship you. You are worthy of all of our praise and more. Can't wait for the day when every single knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But today we also want to hear from you. We look at this world. We know that uh, it's heading in the wrong direction and uh, will come to a cataclysmic end someday. <clears throat> and we want to be ready. Whatever we have to face in our day. So we ask that you prepare us. You'd teach us from your word and you would uh, draw us near to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17. It says 12 through 17 on there. Hope we have the right slide. We'll see. Anyway, Revelation 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. Uh, we are going through the book of Revelation, uh, verse by verse. We're at this section of kingdoms in conflict. There are two kingdoms, according to the Bible. There is the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And you are either in one or the other. Some think they're in one, but really are in the other. And we need to make sure of this. That is a fact. But these two kingdoms, and they are coming, in the book of Revelation, we will see that they are coming to a major conflict, a major showdown. So I thought we'd watch a video clip. Showdown. Now, that was supposed to represent the kingdom's light, kingdom of darkness. I'm not sure which one 
You know, we do see in the Bible that the kingdom of light wins, that it almost make the cat the kingdom of light. I cannot see how that could possibly be. But anyway, you got the point, right? Illustrations are never supposed to be perfect. There has been a cosmic battle going on ever since Satan's fall. The battle rages on this planet with humans as the focal point of controversy. Satan wants to take as many down with him as possible. The battle culminates at the end of time in the last seven-year trial and tribulation. Our passage with the next two seals takes us to the very end. Let's read them. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the militant military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Context of these two seals, we are, we, last week we saw the first four seals. Chapter 6 begins the end of time. Last week we also saw how these seals go in the exact same sequence as Jesus' rendition of the end times in Matthew 24 when he spoke of the birth pains. And so we see these in the, once again in the exact same sequence. We've looked at the first four known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse and now we're seeing these final two uh, which will show us, first of all, the enemy will attack God's people with a fury. That's the fifth seal. But then the sixth seal, God will attack the enemy with a fury. There is a showdown. Kingdoms in conflict. Let's first of all look at verses 9 through 11. The enemy will attack God's people with a fury. This didn't look like a very nice time period here where we see uh, these martyrs crying out to God in prayer seeking the Lord as they are in under the altar, uh, seemingly up in heaven, uh, speaking to the Lord. Uh, once again, we see this in Matthew 24, 9 through 13. That's the next section, speaking of this great persecution that will take place in the end of time. And then, interestingly, in Matthew 24, it culminates 
with a revival taking place in verse 14. And when we get there next week, chapter 7, we will also see a major revival taking place at the end of time. But for now, with this fifth seal, we see that there will be many martyrs. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. A martyr is someone who dies, who is killed specifically because of their testimony of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not just somebody who's doing some nice thing or, you know, or maybe someone in battle or in war or, or, or whatever. Those are good things, uh, you know, to, to uh, die for your country and those kinds of things. But a martyr is specifically someone who dies for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Some people... Uh, Take uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you ever heard of him, they call him a martyr. But he wasn't a martyr. He was simply, he was actually a part of a plan of the assassination attempt of Hitler, and he was killed because of that. that. So he's not a martyr. That doesn't make him a martyr. A martyr is somebody who specifically dies for their faith in Jesus Christ as a witness. And here we see that many are going to be killed. Uh, Ladd says in his commentary, he, uh, he says, Heaven is both the throne room of God and His temple. We saw in chapter 4 and 5 that that was the throne of God, but here we see an altar, so it seems that it is also His temple. This altar is mentioned uh, one, two, three, four, five, six times in the book of Revelation. The fact that John saw the souls of the martyrs under the altar has nothing to do with the state of the dead or their situation in the intermediate state. It is merely a vivid way of picturing the fact that they had been martyred in the name of their God. The souls of martyrs are seen under the altar as though they had been sacrificed upon the altar and their blood poured out at its base. Christian thought often employs the language of sacrificial death. Facing death, the Apostle Paul wrote, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already on the point of being sacrificed. At an earlier date, also facing possible death, he had written in Philippians 2, 17, even if I am being poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. Thus, Christian martyrs are viewed as sacrificed, sacrifices offered to God. In fact, they were slain on earth and their blood wet the ground, but in Christian faith, the sacrifice was really made in heaven where their souls were offered at the heavenly altar. And so we see martyrs. And it brings out, it reminds me of a passage I think is very important for Christians, especially whatever we have to face in this world, perhaps in the end of days as well. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Jesus gives us some discipleship teaching here. In Matthew 10, verse 37, and it's very critical that we get what he's saying here. He doesn't leave ground for wimpy Christians. Let's just say that, okay? He says very specifically, Matthew 10, verse 37, the person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. 
These are important words because what we need to recognize is to take up your cross, when he uses that kind of language, it is not speaking of self-denial or bearing heavy burdens, though we certainly should be a part of that. It is specifically speaking of our willingness to suffer martyrdom. That's the point of this fifth seal as well. Are you willing, no matter what, to live for Jesus Christ and Him alone? Martyrdom. Throughout the history of the church, it has been a part of who we are as Christians. We're not supposed to take the world by the sword, though tragically in our history that did take place. Those were not real Christians. Let me just say that. Okay? True Christians live out this, where they take up their cross. They love their enemies and so forth. They're willing to die for their faith. I think of a guy named Polycarp. You've got to love his name, right? Polycarp, this was in the early 2nd century A.D. He was 87 years old, and he was called by the emperor. He was, the emperor was going to kill him, and he said, Listen, you're 87 years old. Just offer the incense, say Caesar is Lord, and we'll let you off. And this is what he said. He says, for 87 years, the Lord has been faithful to me. How could I be unfaithful to him? And he was burned at the stake for his witness of Jesus Christ. I think of uh, just recently uh, the... uh, I don't want to call it a celebration, but a remembrance of the one and a half million Armenian Christians who were killed in Turkey in 1915 during World War I, specifically because they were Christians. They were slaughtered in their, in their villages. The Turkish government to this day refuses to admit this horrible atrocity. But they were killed for their faith. Read in uh, Daniel Aiken's commentary, he brought out on December 2nd, 2014, the Christian Post carried a story titled Vicar of Baghdad, Four Iraqi Christian Kids Beheaded After Refusing to Convert to Islam, Telling ISIS Militants, No, We Love Jesus. I won't read all the parts to this, but one part of the, uh, the news report said, ISIS turned up and they said to the children, you say the words in, that you will follow Muhammad. The children, all under 15, four of them, they said, no, we love Yeshua, Jesus. We have always loved Yeshua. We have always followed Yeshua. Yeshua has always been with us. The militants said, say the words. The children said, no, we can't do that. And they killed them. Martyrs for Jesus Christ. But this is the thing. The kingdom of God. These are kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of God is advanced through our witness. Especially if it is the witness of martyrdom. Martyr in the Greek actually means witness. Tertullian. In the second century, the end of the second century, he said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Are you willing to die 
for your faith, if it means it will advance the kingdom of God. That's what he's calling us to. That's what we're seeing here. A great number crying out to God. Uh, we, see, we notice in verse 10 that they plead for justice. It says, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? Now, they address God as sovereign Lord, holy and true. Sovereign Lord. This is despotes. It's a different word than the normal word for Lord, kurios. Uh, and uh, and this refers to his sovereign control. Remember, this is this is a focus that we dare not miss throughout the book of Revelation. God is on his throne. He's in complete control. He's allowing this horrible evil for a short time, and then he will end it. But he's in control, and they recognize that sovereign Lord, holy. God is holy transcendently above all evil and therefore cannot tolerate evil. Did you know that God does not judge or grade on a curve? Many people today think that's exactly what he does. If you're pretty good, you'll get in. No, his judgment, his standard is perfection and always will be. If you're not perfect, you will not get in unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ who is perfect. Then by his perfect righteousness, you can get in. That's the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. If we place our faith in him, we're clothed in his righteousness. But that is God's standard because God is holy against sin. And then finally, he is true. He's true to his covenant promises that if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, you are free and saved. So they address God. But then they have this prayer which sounds a little different. At first, it almost sounds like vengeance, but it isn't. It's a prayer of vindication, not vengeance. Uh, I do believe that these uh, had the proper heart that we see in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Let's take a look at that because this must be our heart in the midst of this evil world, even when bad things happen to us. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. These are Paul's words. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what they're doing. They're praying to him. They're leaving it to him. God is in control. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. That must be our heart. Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. And uh, quite interestingly, we just read in our quiet time this morning in, in Matthew where, where Jesus, uh, he was on the cross, and it says after he died that the centurion and those who helped him stated, surely this was the Son of God. 
The prayer was answered, in other words. Father, forgive them. Stephen, also as a martyr, prayed that same prayer. Father, forgive them. It is good to want justice, and it is good to show mercy. Both are found in the cross. But we also see, according to verse 11, there are more martyrs to come. So a white robe, that robe of righteousness, was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. And so we see that there are more martyrs to come. Achan also speaks on this. He says the emphasis is on divine sovereignty. God knows each one who is to be martyred and will vindicate them all at the proper time, which will be soon. God's delay does not mean he does not know. It does not mean he does not care. He knows and he cares. So rest, which is what they were told to do. Justice has been determined and justice will be done. Those who have died for the faith and those who will yet die have not suffered in vain. They are secure because they have the robe of Christ's righteousness. Yes, we have His righteousness and we can trust in His judgment. But there will be more martyrs to come. We're seeing it in the newspapers on almost a regular daily basis. And so we do need to pray for those in the other countries who are being slaughtered for their faith. The enemy will attack God's people with a fury. It seems like he's already starting that right now. But God will attack the enemy with a fury. I kind of like the next seal better than the fifth seal. What we see here is actually it brings us to the very end. Something that is helpful in understanding the book of Revelation. It is not strictly chronological, okay? It actually, if you take these seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls, it's like a spiral. It goes seven seals right to the very end, then spirals back. Seven trumpets right to the very end. We'll see that when we get there then spirals back seven bowls, then right to the very end. Brings us right to the very end throughout that three different times. So we're going to recognize that, and we see that very clearly right here. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, because he quotes what's taking place here with all the earthquakes and and moon turning blood and all that kind of stuff. Look at Matthew chapter 24. This, Jesus tells us what, when this will happen within that seven-year time period, okay? The last seven years of history. It says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. That means immediately at the end, at the end of the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the people of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we see that this is at the very end. So 
John in the book of Revelation has taken us to the very end. It says, Their wrath has come who is able to stand. We notice that at the very end in verses 12 and 14, the earth will experience upheaval, great upheaval. It says, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. This cataclysmic upheaval is spoken of throughout the Bible when it refers to the end times. In fact, even in uh, one example of this is in Nahum chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? Uh, Nahum, he's one of the minor prophets. Uh, so Jonah, Micah, Nahum, if you're thinking, where in the world is that little book? Now you know why we put the page numbers for the Bibles we give away. Nahum chapter 1, look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea so that it dries up and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and all the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. Do you get the picture? (laughs) But look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. God is not a tame God. Total cosmic meltdown is described here. I think of, you know, it says the, the moon will turn like blood and the sun become darkened. There's this, uh, there was this book not too long ago that came out that was kind of famous, The Four Blood Moons. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, you know, last year there were four blood moons in the cycle of the, of whatever you know of our of our earth and uh, and so this book came out and said this is the sign in which the Bible's talking about. And I just want to say no, it wasn't, because there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about four blood moons. Nothing, zero. In fact, it very specifically says the blood the moon will turn like blood at the very end and the sun will also be darkened and the stars will fall probably referring to meteors that word just refers to anything out there up, up in the sky so it's probably meteor meteor showers or whatever which we're supposed to see uh, this week coming up as a meteor shower but uh, not this one don't. I don't think okay uh but that's so, so, and so you've got to be aware of there, there are people who are going to come along and they're going to write books because they want to make lots of money off of you, okay? 
just go by the Bible. It's a lot better. False, by the way, that guy made a false prophecy. He was wrong. What do you do with false prophets? In the Old Testament, you stoned them, but we don't do that anymore. But you definitely don't listen to them or read them. That's my recommendation to you, okay? Back to the passage here, okay? Because this, this is going to happen somehow, some way. We're going to see this at the very end. But you are safe, as we saw in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. You are safe in his arms. You are not safe at arm's length. Draw near to the Lord now. He has sent his son to die on the cross so that your sins could be completely forgiven and you can enter into a personal relationship with God as your father. That's his plan. But his plan also includes end time judgment on the earth. We need to be ready now. Because look at what the unbelievers lived like. In verses 15 through 17, they were scared to death. Look at what it says. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They were scared to death. This is very similar to Isaiah chapter 2. So turn to Isaiah chapter 2, which is also talking about the end days, the last days. Isaiah chapter 2, in fact, if you look at verse 2, it says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the top of the mountains will be raised above the hills. And so, so that's the, the context here, that in the last days, skip to verse 10. He says, go into the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. That's the first time he mentions it. Verse 11, human pride will be humbled. And the loftiness of men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Verse 17, so human pride will be brought low and the loftiness of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Repetition, by the way, in the Bible was for emphasis. Skip to verse 19, second time. People will go into caves and the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from His majestic splendor when He rises to terrify the earth. Verse 21, third time. They will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices in the cliffs away from the terror of the Lord and from His majestic splendor when He rises to terrify the earth. Put no more trust in man who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? The NIV says, stop trusting in mere humans. This is a day that's coming. This is the day that's referred to here. And you've got to look at this and you've got to think about what's going on here. The unbelievers are unrepentant in their fear. And it speaks of the privileged and the poor alike. The privileged and the poor of life, the kings, the nobles, etc., but also the slaves and everyone else. You see, divine judgment is the great equalizer. All social distinctions evaporate before the judgment bar of God. In the past, 
I have experienced disdain from those who felt their status was above mine, even in churches, but not this church. This church is different. We love each other. We have the educated and uneducated, the rich and the poor, and we all seem, it seems to me, to treat each other equally as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a true biblical equality felt here, and I love it. (laughs) Back to these unbelievers. They feared specifically the wrath of the Lamb. Did that that, that phrase just kind of catch you a little strange? At the very end there where it says, they're saying, fall on us to the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It almost sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> the wrath of the Lamb. But we need to be clear on this. Jesus Christ is going to bring judgment. In Daniel Aiken's commentary, He says, liberal and modernist theologians have been quick to extol and embrace the portrait of the meek and lowly Jesus, the gentle and compassionate man from Galilee. Now, to be sure, he is all of these things, meek and humble, gentle and compassionate. However, this portrait is only a partial picture of the Savior revealed in the Bible. Scripture also reveals a Jesus who cleanses the temple, who angrily condemns the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, calling them serpents and a brood of vipers, and who says more about the eternal fire and judgment of hell than anyone else in the Bible. A balanced view of the Savior portrayed in the Bible must hold in tension His love and His holiness, His compassion and His justice, His grace and his righteousness, his mercy, and his wrath. Warren Wiersbe said, If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God, the wrath specifically of the Lamb. But look at these people. Instead of turning to Jesus, they turn to the mountains and the rocks. I just want to say this. I've said it before. Sin makes you stupid. Right? They're talking to rocks. I don't know if you got that. Did you see that? They're crying out to the rocks, saying, fall on us, hide us. They think they can hide from God, who is everywhere. This is the foolishness that we see. It was kind of like Adam and Eve. Remember them hiding in the garden from God, sporting their fig leaves? But sin makes you stupid. And I would just simply say, come out of your stupidity. Turn to the Lamb who died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. Receive His love now. That's what we're to see in all of this. God may call us to martyrdom, but He will always give us the grace to face whatever we must face, and He will defeat the enemy. I wanted to read something. It says, Bernard Petrie, a young minister, frequently boasted in public 
that all the time he needed to prepare his Sunday morning sermon was the few minutes it took him to walk to the church from the parsonage next door. Soon after, the elders bought him a new parsonage five miles away. Oliver Mendel, Ph.D., the noted scientist, made a careful study of people who fell asleep in church. His conclusion was that if all the sleeping congregants were laid end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. (laughs) I take seriously what I'm supposed to feed you. And I believe his word is the best food for your soul. And even these difficult passages of darkness, of judgment, uh, uh, we need to wrestle with them. We need to understand what's going on, especially what will take place in the end of time. We're all supposed to take seriously how we are to serve in the church until Jesus comes back. All of us. God may call us to martyrdom. That's what we're seeing in this passage. He may call us to serve in the nursery. And those are not the same thing. Okay? Just want to make that clear. I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have put those right next to each other. But but he calls all of us. We all have a part to play. And in this is with the right heart and attitude. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did correctly say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And will you respond to his call? In a book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan, which I highly recommend every single Christian on the planet should read this book. And this is how he concludes. He says, and so we are at the end of this book. I don't think it's coincidence that God has encouraged my heart so much over this past week with the story of the three believers who were martyred in Turkey. I'm writing this in April 2007, and the news about the three martyrs, Tillman, Nakati, and Uger, is still fresh. I can't get them out of my mind. They were tortured for three hours in ways that I didn't know were humanly possible. I'll spare you the details. But it was repulsive and horrific. I think of how they must have looked at each other while being tortured with stares that said, just hold on a little longer. Don't deny him. It'll all be worth it. It's been about a week and a half since their deaths. How thrilled they must be right now. I cannot imagine the joy they felt just five seconds after their deaths. I know that when I meet them, they'll say it was so worth it. A hundred or a thousand or a million years from now, they'll still say it was so incredibly worth it. Stories about faithful saints like our brothers killed in Turkey are what we talk about in heaven. Will you have stories? Will you respond to his call? Let's pray.